Okay, so after last week's two-parter on fear, I hope everyone's just feeling calm and strong and collected, and most importantly, most importantly, ready to talk about trees. Are you ready? Okay, here's the probably scenario. This is what I'm thinking is happening. You either fucking love trees, and that's why you're here, or you're like, good lord, podcast dad, what is this long-ass episode about trees even gonna cover? I'm gonna dive in, but only if it's full of infectious enthusiasm. And boy howdy, you doubters, you don't know the half of it. This episode will make you so pumped about trees, you're going to be bummed about having skin and blood. You're going to be so jealous of bark and sap. And you'll have new Scrabble words. And you'll start questioning if you should just string a hammock up in the backyard and live outside like a big ape squirrel. But first... Let's get some business out of the way. I'll speak fast. Okay, it's important business, like telling you you can be an ologite who proselytizes with an ology shirt or pin or totes if you wear totes at ologiesmerch.com. Thank you all for buying and wearing merch. Uh, Patreon.com slash ologies is a portal through which you can also ensure that this podcast exists. Real talk, I have like 10 other jobs. This one takes the most time and pays me definitely the least, but I love it the most. And patrons help cover costs of hiring an editor to make sure I can put them out every week. And I'm still mulling over whether to have advertising. I'll be honest with you, because I know sometimes you don't want to hear ads. And I want you guys to be happy. You just want to hear about trees, maybe. So I've turned down ads and I just raise income through Patreon. And if you think that's dumb, feel free to tweet me about it because I maybe I'm doing business wrong. I probably am. I'm going to read those tweets if you give me advice on that. Just like I read your reviews. Ooh, what a segue. So rating and reviewing and making sure you're subscribed on iTunes. You can check right now, make sure you're subscribed. Keeps ologies just killing it in the science charts. We're still rubbing elbows at the top 25 or 30 science podcasts ever, which is thrilling. And also your reviews kind of brighten my my cloudiest day is for real. Um, this week, this one just delighted me. Jude Kenny wrapped up a review by saying, Boy, howdy, you may find yourself pulling off the road during your commute on a Tuesday to sit in the still of your car staring out the window while you ponder your life choices. Five stars. Thank you for that. Now, on to dendrology. Okay, this trees. You ready for trees? Okay, so dendro comes from ye old Greek, meaning tree. And if you're like that, why does that remind me of brain stuff. Well, that's because the dendrite is a part of a nerve cell that looks a lot like a tree. So dendra, there you go, trees. So you've got trees in the brain. You're going to have trees on the brain after this. I'll tell you that much. You're going to be pining for more arborist facts. Okay. So the term dendrologist is a little funky. So technically, it's anyone who studies trees, which this human being I interviewed has done. I have never met anyone with such a raw zeal or deep knowledge for and of trees. You will love him. He's been studying tree biology and dendrology since 2007, and he's currently a tree inspector for the city of Portland, Oregon, and he gives talks all over the world about trees. He teaches sold-out classes. I was like, so, yeah, so you're a dendrologist, right? And he demurred at the title of dendrologist. I'm like, dude, this is like when I was goth. I didn't realize I was a goth until I looked back at pictures and I was like, oh, I was definitely a goth. You study trees. You're a damn dendrologist. Accept it. But he was like, mm, 
we'll get to that. So I was headed to Seattle for a day to shoot this show called Innovation Nation. That's one of my other jobs. And I thought, I bet there's got to be tree people up here. There's so many trees. So I did a little Googling and I saw there was a sold out tree workshop the day I was there led by this Portland based dude. And then I began very gingerly stalking him online to try to get in touch. The only social media I could find was a Facebook account. And after following like a few leads, I emailed his bosses and then presto, the next day I creepily invited him to hang out in my hotel room. I figured his bosses knew where he was, and I hoped he would not abuse his access to chainsaws. He did not. He was great. So we talked for literally two hours, which was very difficult to cut down. No tree pun intended. About so many burning curiosities. Do trees feel pain? How do they talk to each other? What's up with crown shyness? Does he have a favorite tree? Will trees make you write your novel any faster? Does he get sad when he looks at wooden objects? What is tree porn? And are there any super sad stories about trees? Spoiler, yes. And also great ones? Also yes. So I'm going to go out on a limb and say this is a great episode. So stick around for some really wonderful tree facts, will ya? Lumber up, I swear to God. That's going to be the last tree pun. Please trust me. For a person who is somewhat in denial about being a dendrologist, Casey Clapp. Great. So this is your mic. You were um, you weren't the easiest person to to gently stalk online. Oh, that's fantastic. So I didn't know I could be found. Yes, you <laughs> could. Anyone would ever look. I was like, I must talk trees with him. Oh my god, this is so this is flattering. Thank yeah. you. Okay, so I have a question. Yes, go ahead. Arborist versus dendrologist. Yes. What's the difference? So an arborist specifically focuses on trees in the urban area. But most of the time, an arborist is one who manages a tree in the urban area. So if they're going to cut a tree, remove a tree, plant trees, they're the ones who usually have something to do with it. Um, But then a dendrologist is usually someone that's more on the research side of the world. And they're like, okay, we're going to study this plant, its characteristics, or this tree more specifically, its characteristics and where it fits in with the rest of all the other trees in the world. So dendrologists basically work on the the, the back end of things classifying all the different trees into certain organizational standards. So can you call, if you study and you love trees, can you call yourself a dendrologist? Yeah, I would okay. say I would say so. So Casey got his Bachelor's of Science in Forest Management with a focus on urban forestry. And then he went and got a master's focusing on arboriculture. So it seems that an arborist deals with trees, knows a lot about trees, and a dendrologist studies identifying trees specifically. So Casey studied dendrology, but is now an arborist. But you guys, anyone who knows this damn much about trees is a dendrologist in my book, okay? Let's just agree. There are bigger issues in the world. Okay. When you were going about your education, yes. <clears throat> so Casey's deciding mm-hmm. to study trees. Yeah. Oh, where, what a beautiful time. <laughs> where do you so start? Good. Well, for me, it started with a just a tenacity of about nature. I like to go outside and I like to do things. I like to play in the mud and climb trees. 
And then I did, uh, I built a pond in my backyard and I was like, oh, I love this. I'm going to do it forever. And then it ended up being that uh, I hated landscape architecture. Oh. Like, I can't do this. This is so <laughs> infunctional stuff. It's all, I say frilly, but I don't think that gives them enough credit. They do very good work. Mm-hmm. But I was very much a person who needed to manage something and it needed to be active and it needed to have an amount of... Um, utility in the landscape. So I was like, ah, not really interested. So, but I was killing it at all the tree courses I was taking. I was just like, this is immensely fascinating. I want to learn more about trees for no other reason than learning it. So then I transferred over to Oregon State University and I did forestry, which was a way huge overcorrection because they don't do trees for anything but making money for the most part. Oh. Like, hey, we're going to, we're just going to grow these trees to cut them down to make pulp, make paper, make money. Do whatever they're going to do. I didn't know that's what forestry was. I thought forestry oh was a, like tree hugging, like every uh-huh. tree has a name. I had no oh, idea. Oh, gosh. Oh, my. I wish. It was, uh, this is for the people who grew up on Ferngully, mm-hmm. where we're just like, oh, I love this so much. <laughs> it's, it is an industry like any other nowadays, where you go out to mostly clear cuts for all intents and purposes, which is they get a bad name, but they're not actually that bad in the grand scheme. All they would do is go out and say, okay, we have these many or this many trees. They're growing this fast. We want to cut them down in 50 years and make a profit. How can we do that? So it's a really important thing. And, you know, we have tables and chairs and pencils and all these things that we use every single day. So it's a really important renewable resource. But unfortunately, they are looking at it more or less for dollar signs, which is fun. I was wondering, as someone who clearly loves trees. Yeah. I got a lot of tattoos of trees. Do you really? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I got photosynthesis tattooed across my chest. (laughs) You're a walking PowerPoint. (laughs) Yeah, sometimes, yeah. Especially. So wait, you you have photosynthesis on your chest. Yeah. What else do you have? Um, I got a uh, sugar maple on this arm, and then I have roots coming down off of this arm. And I'm wearing a long sleeve shirt, so obviously you can't see it. Um, But your long sleeve shirt, by the way, has trees on it. Yes. Yeah, it has Don Redwood on the back. Yeah. (laughs) So you're covered in trees externally and then also from a dermatological perspective. Yes, yeah, pretty much. (laughs) Casey also has a pair of white bark pine cones tattooed on the inside of his right bicep. They're beautiful. The the tattoo, I'm not making a comment about his bicep. Good job. Either way, that's your business. Um, He has an acorn on his other bicep and he also has a dodo bird to represent the delicate balance between endangered plants and animals. So he's like a walking botanical garden pamphlet. Obviously a very huge advocate for more trees in cities. And for me, I'm like an LA resident. So this part of the conversation made my heart choke with longing. I was like, "Mm, mm." do you have trees in your city? You lucky son of a bitch. Mm-hmm. So every tree in the urban area is providing some amount of benefit to the city. Many times people have no idea and it's a very subconscious sort of thing, but there are reasons why certain streets covered with trees or neighborhoods are more um, idyllic mm-hmm. and other people live in other places that have no trees on their streets and it's a much hotter place. It's more rigid, more um, sort of industrial and everyone's like, yeah, it's a little more or more of an uncomfortable space. Yeah. So basically what I do now is say, here are all the characteristics of trees. Here's how they flow. Here's how they function and here's how you can best use them on your side or in a city to accomplish all these great things that they do. Do you have a favorite tree? I do, yeah. But it changes pretty constantly. What is it now? Right now, it would be the Coast Redwood, which is so stereotypical, I know. Why is it stereotypical? It's a majestic tree. I completely concur. But people have generally said, uh, like, they come up with the first thing that comes to them. So a lot of times when I ask people, they're like, oh, willows. 
Mm-hmm. And I'm like, cool. 80% people say willows or something really? like that. It's really strange. No one thinks about it until you ask them the question. Do you know what your favorite tree is? I was like, do I have a favorite? Yes, I do. It's an oak. I have a favorite tree. I guess we all do. But coastal redwoods, Casey's favorite. They grow from southern Oregon, just down the central coast of California, all the way down to about Santa Cruz. And they grow in this fog belt right near the shore because that fog helps get moisture to the top of these like 350 foot giant trees. And if you're needing to imagine a silhouette of one, you're like, what do they look like? You know the logo for Stanford? Okay, well that there is the image of El Palo Alto, one particularly famous local coastal redwood tree. It's also the unofficial mascot of Stanford. It's dubbed very creatively the tree. And according to Wikipedia, the tree, despite very heroically replacing a decidedly more shitty mascot, the tree has been called one of America's most bizarre and controversial college mascots. People hate it. It regularly appears at the top of the internet's worst mascot lists, which apparently exist. But I'm going to very publicly beg to differ because once you have seen a gif of a dancing layered green tent with a very happy human being inside, your heart's going to be one. I love it. Anyway, Coastal Redwoods, Casey's favorite tree. So naturally, I get it all the time, so I had a lot of time to think. Okay. So specifically, they're just the, they're just the bomber trees. They are rot resistant, so almost no funguses affect them. They are um, insect resistant, so insects don't get into them. They don't eat the foliage. They don't get into the bark. Their bark is like literally feet thick, and it's fire resistant. So nothing can penetrate it. Fire doesn't burn it. Sometimes fire will actually hollow out the inside of the tree, but leave the bark alone. But then the trees actually survive because they can sprout from any place that still has functionality down to the roots. So not only are they also the tallest trees in the world, some of the longest lived, some of the biggest in terms of volume. So they've accomplished you know, like all these superlatives. Mm-hmm. Then on top of that, they basically can outlive anything. They don't have any more predators and they can sprout. Most conifers can't do that. If you cut them down at the base, they're done. They're ended. Really? Whereas on it For a redwood, you cut it down at the base and the roots just shoot up all these new sprouts and you're just like, oh, the tree still lives. This is great. The roots are like, I don't care. I'm going, yeah. I'm going to go ahead. Exactly. Yeah. So they're just, they're, are the world's just most bomber trees. And if you haven't been there, you should go. They're just, they're, they're, there's nothing like in the world. Quick anatomy lesson of trees. Ooh, okay. What are we dealing with? And also, true or false, the root system is like kind of as big as the actual branches and canopy. Mm, like, mediocrely both. Okay, okay. Yeah. So give me an anatomy lesson. Yeah, sort of both. Okay, so real quick, there are four main organs of a tree. First off, what is a tree? A tree, by some definitions, is literally like this one guy on a book I have, he describes it as a bush with a stick up the middle. And okay. That's literally, it's like, okay, that's a pretty <laughs> dumbed down version. I tried to track down what this book might be just to see if it had any other cool definitions, like that a flower is a leaf, but on acid. But upon Googling Bush with a stick up the middle, literally all that turned up were photos of George W. Bush flipping people to bird. And also this video during his presidency as he's doing a sound check. Can we roll and type on that? Just a one finger victory salute. I'm going to say by today's standards, that seems downright charming and presidential as hell. I'm fine with it. Anyway, a tree, a bush with a stick up the middle. So that's what we would define as a tree. 90% of the things that you know of as a tree are a tree. Mm -hmm. But then there's things like, uh, say, Joshua tree. 
that's technically a yucca. It doesn't put on annual rings the same way the redwood or an oak would. And then there is banana trees. Banana trees are actually just cells. There's no woodiness to them. You can go oh. over and knock them over if you really want. Really? Not necessarily. It's probably not that easy. But they're just big, big cells and big... Um, Big things are basically just large um, herbs, just like a oh. hosta or anything else. Yeah. Weird. Yeah. So there's no actual woody parts in them. So well, we still call them trees. So it's like, uh, where's the definition going? So with, um, so if we have a tree and we say, okay, it's going to woody thing. Let's just use a, um, let's use the Oregon white oak, for example. Okay. So the Oregon white oak, one usually has a single stem, comes out and has this big, nice, beautiful um, globe-like crown. So there's four main organs. You have the roots, you have the stem and the branches, then you have the flowering parts and you have the leaves. Those are the four things that you would call organs in a tree just for simplicity's sake four main organs okay so the roots of a tree generally at least in the uh, pacific northwest and in our um, more temperate regions this is going to blow so many minds they're only in the top two to three feet of soil what that's it that's it even that the big guys it. even the big guys yeah so if you ever are looking at a um at a tree you go out into the woods and you see a tree that's toppled over and it's picked up its entire root ball if you measure from the top of that down to the very lowest root you're not going to get past four feet anywhere. That's crazy. I always thought they went way down. Yeah. They go out. They go out. Why go down any further? If you can remain stable and you got all your nutrients and all your water and oxygen you need at the top, there's no reason to go down. You got all the stuff you need. But basically you have, imagine a um, a wine glass or a... Um, like an umbrella that has a base? Exactly. An umbrella sitting on a platter. Mm -hmm. would be the best way to imagine it. And so that's why roots are so important. People are like, oh, it's it's not that, you know, they go down. You're like, no, 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 it doesn't. People think it's that mirror image and it's definitely not. Oh, yeah, because I feel like you do see that kind of like mirror image. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I got a a friend who got a tattoo of that exact same thing. This is before I knew anything about it. But yeah, (laughs) the roots go down. It almost mirrors the exact same thing going up. And it's a very romantic version. It's like, oh, that's great. You know, you know, ah, reflection of below and above. But eh, it's completely false. Oh my God, I yeah. had no idea. Okay, so that's the anatomy of a tree. Um, really? Well, there's one extra step. Mm-hmm. So this is the next most important thing. Trees are compartmentalizers. So if you cut off one of their branches, they will just close it off and keep moving. Just like uh, compartments in a ship. All you have to do is close it off and then everything else can go on as normal. So they have these two main things. You have cambium layer, which is the vascular system of the tree, just below the bark, just outside the wood. That's where the trees grow and put on their new rings. That is where they send nutrients and water from the ground up and that's called the xylem that's a good word if you play scrabble it's x y l e m <laughs> you can fit that in on a triple word score with that x man you're killing it you're really doing well oh man one time i was also i was making a joke so i know a lot of latin terms for things just because it's the scientific names of plants and their parts and i was playing scrabble with a friend at a coffee shop in portland and this other guy came up and he's like hey man can i just play with you guys and we're like yeah yeah totally cool and i made we made the joke i was like yeah well we're only using latin terms and i swear to god without even blinking an eye the guy was just like okay and we're like, who did we get ourselves into? Oh, no. He massacred us. Really nice what? guy, but oh my gosh, he knew how to play Scrabble. He what was his job? Us. What was his deal? No idea. I don't even remember. I didn't ask. It was just, I, we were stuck. We were shell shocked. Yeah. We had to leave that coffee shop and think to ourselves, we're never playing Scrabble in public again. <laughs> certainly never with anybody else. It was Ken Jennings. It was just yeah. Jeopardy and Jim. <laughs> I know. Just uh-huh. wearing a fake mustache. Yeah. Like, oh my God. Yeah. Okay. So Xylem. Okay. Buckle up because... This part's going to get a little technical, but you're going to learn a few new Scrabble words, as promised, and or names for your gluten-free organic children. Cambium, phloem, photosynth, and xylem, of course, which is Greek 
for wood. And yes, that is where the word xylophone comes from. So Scrabble, Jeopardy, you're prepped for anything. Okay, back to xylem. Takes all the nutrients and water up to all the leaves. The leaves, they are doing the photosynthesis. So they're creating the energy from the sun. Um, they start pulling all of their nutrients, or all their um, photosynthate is what some people call it, basically sugars, and they pull those down and that goes to the phloem, which is the pipes that go down. And that's basically it. Oh. Tree roots pull things up through the stem and then puts things out to the leaves. The leaves are the factory. They create all the food. Then they put that down and distribute it out to the rest of the tree. Ooh, are you ready for a hot tree scandal? Okay, sometimes a tree breaks up with its own limbs. This is drama! Many times if there is competition, it actually cuts it off itself. If they are growing a limb out directly to another tree, they get shaded out. They're like, eh, this is too much energy I'm putting in and not getting enough back. So they just cut it off. That branch dies. The rest of the tree keeps growing. And that is what people call um, self-shedding or self-pruning trees. It's not really that the tree is just like, okay, I'm done, and then drops a branch. Some do, but that's a completely different story. This one is more where the trees no longer um, feed it, literally close the compartment off to that branch. That branch slowly dies, slowly dies, and then as soon as it falls off, maybe a crow lands on it and it's so decayed, Mm -hmm. just topples to the ground. Then the tree then seals over that wound. Trees don't heal, they seal. They specifically close it up and then continue to grow like nothing ever happened it's like ghosting your own arm exactly you're just like you just ice it out you're like yeah listen it's not me it's it's definitely you it's definitely you i'm sorry not pulling your weight yeah i'll send you a text (laughs) you're out yeah but then the joke is it's never getting that text (laughs) i have a gossipy question oh yeah go ahead how do you feel about the redwoods that they have carved an area where you can drive a car through. Oh, God, it's mutilation. Okay, that's what I thought. <laughs> yeah, it's not the worst. Obviously, the trees are still living. So, what's the tree through going through? Oh, it's going through hell. Absolutely. It's, it, well, it went through hell. It's basically like you get a tunnel carved through your stomach. Oh. But imagine that instead of like we as humans, our bodies are just 100%. Um, they're all connected to your thing. So if you get your arm cut off, your body's like, well, okay, everything is messed up. Then you have to, you know, someone has to sew it up, blah, blah, blah. You don't heal and grow a new arm. Trees are compartmentalizers. So if you cut a hole in their stomach, they're just going to block off everything around that hole and keep moving. Like nothing ever happened because everything else is going on around the tree itself. And the wood is actually basically inert. It's just a physical structure holding the tree up. Okay, remember the cambium layer from earlier? So as we recorded, we were both drinking tea, raided from my hotel minibar, and Casey had a visual metaphor for the cambium layer, which really helped. He said if you're looking at a full coffee cup, the coffee inside would be the wood, the mug would be the cambium layer, and the outside of the mug would be the bark. Does that make sense? So the cambium layer is like super important in terms of keeping a tree alive. So all you have to do is keep that cambium layer alive. So Mm -hmm. if you put a tunnel through one of those redwoods, then it's like, oh, shoot. Well, now there's a big hole in it. The tree doesn't like it, but it'll get through it, you know, just like anything else. Just like if a fire came through and a fire burned a hole in one side and then burned out the other side as well. The tree will be fine. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, assuming the tree lives, it'll be fine. It'll just continually seal over those wounds and protect itself. I went to go look up which tree this was, and I found out there's tons of gutted tunnel trees in California. We have made an industry. An industry. 
Oh God, I'm so sorry. I'm sorry. That pun came out of nowhere. It was like a burp during a job interview. I'm sorry. Okay, but yes. So we've made quite a few park attractions out of tunneling out the trunks of these behemoth trees and just trying to drive cars through them. We're monsters. We're monsters. And we love road trips. We're just doing our best. But in researching this, I also found out about the Hercules tree, which an eccentric rancher dug out a 12 by 9 foot room into and tried to live in it. God bless him. But the tree was just weeping sap onto his face at night too much. So they just were like, ah, they just made it into a gift shop. But there are a good handful of tunneled out trees down the California coast, and two big ones have fallen. Most recently, this one called the Pioneer Cabin Tree, which toppled and very dramatically shattered in early 2017 after some severe weather. The Calaveras Big Tree Association remarked, quote, the storm was just too much for it. The st- the storm was too much for it. The storm? You're going to blame the storm? That's like knifing someone with a machete and then saying that it's probably probably a metal allergy killed them. Anyway. But it also sucks that you can't drive through it anymore unless you have like a Mini Cooper because they did it way back with the Mini T's or the uh, Model T's and now we're driving like Hummers and they're like, we'll make the hole bigger. It's like, no. <laughs> it's, the, it's the worst. Now, but. talk to me a little bit about how trees talk to each other because I feel like there was some some research or something came out recently about how trees can talk to each other through their roots and everyone was like, what? Ah, trees looking at it, thinking the trees are watching them. It's like, oh my God. I mean, it's also so cruel to think that that story made the newspapers, which are dead yeah. trees, which is <laughs> horrifying. Is. Yeah. Oh. They cut down a tree and like, this tree's not talking to you, but the ones that are still living are. Oh God. <laughs> it is. So how do the it's... roots communicate? Do they share nutrients? Do they talk to each other? What's happening yeah. under the surface? Oh, this is so fascinating. Fascinating. So this, the book you're talking about is called The Hidden Life of Trees, okay. I think. Not to be confused with The Hidden Life of Plants, a pseudoscience book from many years ago, which is absolutely interesting to read, but very silly. All right. I looked this up, and the weird one is actually called Secret Life of Plants. It's kind of like this woo-woo 1973 volume about botanical sentience, the authors of which gave lie detector tests to houseplants after trying to communicate through ESP. It's out there. Um, they also postulated that their little green friends might originate in a super material world of cosmic beings such as fairies, elves, gnomes, sylphs, and a host of other creatures, end quote. Okay. They made a movie about it, which is not to be confused with David Attenborough's Private Life of Plants documentary in which he tickles a Venus flytrap. Anyway, so not Secret Life of Plants, not Private Life of Plants, Anyway, Casey's talking about the hidden life of trees. And one author, the German Peter Holben, I don't know, describes that trees feed each other other sugars through their roots when one is sick or dying, and they communicate to each other using chemical and electrical cues in response to stimulus, not unlike how humans use vocal cues to say, hey, fools, there are donuts in the break room. Or how we type posts on secret Facebook message boards saying, watch out, this hipster dude sucks. Do not lay with him. Girls do that, by the way. So it's really comes down to um, when we communicate as people, I say something to you. There's no physical connection between us. I just say something and you hear and then you act on it. A tree, everything is a stimulus that comes from something. So all the roots, if it's the same species, their roots can graft together. 
What? Yeah, it's kind of mind-blowing, but what's going on underneath the soil, which the soil is probably the most important thing that you can ever consider about a tree. Most people look up, but there is an entire underground system of things that no one ever thinks about. So regardless, the way it works with the... Um, sort of the hidden life of plants is they have, they graft themselves together. So if you have really, really thin bark on those root hairs and those root hairs touch each other and then they can basically start passing um, their, or the cambium layer sort of connects. So something comes out, takes a left and then goes into another root could be from the same tree, but if it's the same species, then it'll actually connect together and you can get an entire forest of all these trees connected, <gasps> which is fascinating. But it's not like one tree is connected to all the rest, like a network. It's like, it's kind of like the internet where you have one computer, then another computer, then another tree, then another tree, mm -hmm. then another tree that all may have or may not have these root hairs connected. But then there's a sub layer on that, which is mushrooms. Okay. Mycelium. This is the new thing that really like blew up. Like Radiolab did a whole thing on it and everyone's mm -hmm. like, ah, mushrooms, what trees? There are a, <laughs> an insane amount of mushrooms that are, we're actually, people have more genetic things in common with mushrooms than we do with trees and other plants. So That's it's, crazy. It's crazy to think about. They're basically sentient things. That's not true. Strip that from the record. Right. Uh, we'll give them we'll give honorary, them the honorary, yeah. honorary. Yes, we'll take it. <laughs> so basically, what they do is all these um, uh, all these fungus um, have this mutualistic um, relationship. It's called symbiosis. And what they do is a fungus has root hairs or mycelium that's microscopic, much smaller than the root hairs of a tree. So if you are a tree growing in a place like, let's say, Southern Oregon. Then you have a much drier condition. Tree roots are a certain size, maybe like the size of your finger for this instance. And so you're like, oh man, I can only reach into a certain size crack where this water is. And the water is held up within these smaller pores in the soil. So if the trees can't physically get their roots in to grab it, then it's basically not available. So this fungus ends up getting this mutualistic relationship. The tree gives the fungus sugars that it produces up in the canopy. So the fungus gets some food. And then the fungus, if our fingers are the size of root hairs, then our hair, our actual physical hair is something on the size of the, um, of the fungus. So the fungus can be like, oh yeah, I can go ahead and grab that water. And so the fungus goes in and basically creates like a whole second level of roots for this tree. And the way you can tell if a tree needs water, this is great. It's kind of like a straw where on the very tippy top, you have evaporation, evapotranspiration. Okay. Evapotranspiration is just literally the process of water going from the ground through a plant or a tree out to the air. Okay. So what they do or how the trees function, they grab the, they grab some water, do some photosynthesis or do whatever they do. And then some water escapes. So when that water is released into the atmosphere, just like you're drinking out of a straw, one molecule pulls on the next, pulls on the next, pulls on the next using capillary action all the way down the tubes of the tree to the soil, into the roots. And then all of a sudden that root is pulling up another little molecule of water and you what? get this full cycle. So the, as soon as the trees have this def this pressure deficit where it's sucking more water into the air than it has in the ground, then the fungus will then be like, oh wow, there's a pressure deficit and water just osmoses over to that area. So it's not that everything is communicating like the fun the trees like, no, oh, I need water. Fungus, give me water. <laughs> it's more like there's all these, you know, scientific processes or these, you know, natural processes that are functioning in this very specific system that then one little molecule gets pulled up, pulls on the next molecule, pulls on the next molecule, so on and so forth until the fungus gives it a molecule. And then there you go. Side note, I learned of this from a biology teacher 
years ago, and it's always stuck with me, that this chain of water keeps the plants healthy. So to prolong the life of cut flowers, if anyone ever gives them to you, trim the ends about an inch underwater to prevent getting an air bubble in the stem, and then they'll last longer. So there you go. Don't say I never surprise you with flower facts. And if it's been a while since anyone got you flowers, go get yourself some flowers for a few bucks at Trader Joe's or something. Just go pretend they're from your weird old pal ward over here. You deserve it, kiddo. Just cut them underwater. That's all I ask. So do you dream about trees? Um, Yeah. Yeah, but usually it's related to work in a negative way, okay. where I'm just like, oh, I'm tr- I'm going to have to have you cut down. Trees need a certain amount of space to grow because their roots are really what matters. They have to grow out to stabilize the tree, to get new nutrients and all that sort of thing. So as soon as you have a situation where a tree um, is in conflict with development, most of the time development's going to win. Yeah. So you go over, and I, le- I told people all the time, so you measure diameter, you take a, a tape, you measure around the tree, and it tells you the diameter of that tree. So you have to literally reach around the tree and then grab the diameter tape and pull it around. So you're literally hugging a tree oh. every single time. And so when I was up here in Seattle, there would be these huge developments. You go into a forest, and you'd be like, this is a beautiful forest. Oh my God, this is gorgeous. You hug every single tree, oh. every single tree, and then look up and say, okay, they're all healthy, they're good. You look back at the plans, and there's a, a subdivision going in, and you just put X's over every single oh. tree. Oh, the one that you hug. I know. <laughs> all of the ones, yeah. There's some big ones where you're just like, you are older than every single person alive right now. Oh. Oh my God. No. And as a city worker now, every time, every chance uh, I get, not every chance, when it's appropriate and allowed by code, I'm like, no, you may not cut down that tree. Nice. You have to do this to protect it. And then usually if you're working with good developers, which there are many, they're just like, okay, sweet. Yeah. What, what should we do? How should we do this? And then we get it set and we save a tree and it's just so stellar. Because then when you get done, you have this building. Like I was talking about with neighborhoods earlier. If you have a an old house, an old building with these two huge trees in front of it, you get this, uh, this sense of stateliness. Yeah. Um, but also like permanence where it's like that house exists. It has existed there. The trees, they're there. They exist. And then it's like... Nothing is ephemeral. It's all that that exists. So people, I'm like, hey, when you get done with your building, it's going to look like it was here for the last 50 years. And people are going to walk out there, see these beautiful um, limbs in front of their house, in front of their um, their patio or not even patio, like your deck if you're in an apartment building or something. And you can just chill out there and there's going to be birds hanging around. It's going to be 10 degrees cooler on your deck rather than the deck where they cut down and planted the little tiny trees. So... You know, there's always rotations. Things are always coming and going, but it's really nice if we can keep the big ones that are really, like, outstanding trees. You're a tree yeah. advocate. Oh, my God. Yes, I am. You're Every chance I trees. get. Yeah, yeah. I do want to go back and ask about... I realize I should have asked you this question next. I've been seeing a lot of information on the internet about crown shyness. Crown shyness. Canopy shyness, where at the very top of a tree, mm-hmm. the tops of the trees tend not to touch each other. Oh. So if you haven't seen pictures of what I think is very coyly dubbed crown shyness, it's also known as canopy disengagement, which sounds like you're talking about divorced lovers as far as vibes. But it looks like if you looked up at a tree canopy and all of the trees stopped just short of touching. It looks like super wicked mosaic art or maybe like a huge leafy puzzle. And your brain is like, whoa, what? Plants must have minds. Or maybe nothing is real and I'm on drugs. That's so pretty and crazy. I fact-checked Casey's following explanation and dude's on the money. It's almost as if he knows a shit ton about trees. 
Okay, What's yeah, the yeah. deal with that? Honestly, I've never really given it a second thought. The only thing that I can think of, um, which happens in trees nowadays, and this may be completely conjecture, so we'll just put a little dot next to that. Okay. But if you look up, the whole canopy of the tree is swaying and moving back and forth. If there are other trees next to it, they're swaying back and forth into each other. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times, trees will hit each other and oh. actually break off limbs. And basically, you know, it's it's competition at its highest, you uh-huh. know, or at highest, where they're actually literally, you know, putting in punches <laughs> towards each other. So it's less like a mystical tango, and it's more just like a windy mosh pit. But other than that, I really can't think of um, a good reason aside from uh, the like getting light. You know, Mm -hmm. you want to if they aren't touching, then they're not shading each other out. Yeah. So they can just stay right there. It's like no one's asked me that before. (laughs) I think it's something that just came out on the Internet. (laughs) Oh, did it? Okay, nice. I'm very bad on the Internet. I'm the worst millennial in the world. (laughs) Yeah, you were hard to find. (laughs) Nice. That's great. Which is good because you were outside, not looking at a screen. Exactly. What about the Lorax? Did you read the Lorax as a kid? Yeah, I did. I do actually have a truffle tree planted on, or tattooed on my arm as well. Hell yes, yeah. you do. Yeah. So Casey showed me the underside of his left arm where he has a little truffle tree from the Lorax, which is this Dr. Seuss ecological epic kids book about a dude who cuts down a bunch of fluffy, beautiful trees to make pajamas and he destroys the environment, leaving a smoggy, apocalyptic wasteland. So in the book and on Casey's skin, the word unless appears etched into kind of a rocky pulpit. Unless someone like you cares a whole awful lot, nothing's going to get better. It's not. It's pretty damn depressing. P.S. After the Lorax was released, a logging company got super PO'd and published a competing pro-logging book called The True Axe. And people were like, logging company, can you just fucking not? Anyway, a good reminder not to burn the earth because of pajamas. Okay, let's talk about old ass trees. Speaking of this, dendrochronology. Oh my god. Let's talk about aging trees and tree rings. Yep. How can you tell the age of a tree looking at rings Mm -hmm. and what are some of the oldest trees and does it hurt the tree when you're boring into them to get a core sample? Oh yeah. Let's talk about tree rings. Oh, this is so great. So basically, um, dendrochronology is the um, strictly the study of tree rings. So tree rings, every it's you know pretty well known in, at least in the temperate regions. Every tree grows for a certain amount of year, then it goes dormant. Then it grows for a certain amount of year, then it goes dormant. So each time it grows, it puts on a new ring of wood on every single surface, so on the trunk, on all the branches, on the roots, that is just an annual count. You know, for us, we treat it like a count. For the tree, it's actually the tree getting stronger every single year. So sometimes it'll put more wood on if it's a really good year. Sometimes it'll put less wood on if it's a shorter year, or a shorter growing season or harsher growing season. So the rings, if the rings vary in Mm -hmm. width, it usually means maybe there was better conditions, better water, and it grows more Mm -hmm. that year. And then maybe there's a drought and the rings get closer together. Precisely. Yeah, exactly. So in California which is where the oldest trees grow. Thank you very much. We got bristlecone pines and foxtail pines. And in the central mountain area, the oldest ones grow. They look like alive driftwood. They're craggy and dense and ancient. And they look like it's just been a slow motion struggle to get out of the rocky, dry earth around them. The oldest specimens have been found in the White Mountains in Inyo National Forest, which is in eastern central California, kind of borders on Nevada. I don't think there's a lot going on there other than a bunch of old trees. 
But if you have a tree that is, say, 2,400 years old, then you have a climactic record for 2,400 years of what was going on. Like, oh, in year um, AD 2, there was not very much wood. That was a bad year in the mountains of you know central California. Mm-hmm. So what they can do or what they've done with dendrochronology is you can look back specifically in these trees, the bristlecone pines. What they do is they basically say, okay, let's find a living tree. Let's find the oldest one. The oldest one I believe is called uh, Methuselah. No one knows exactly where it's at. There's another super sad story about the oldest, oldest tree. It was so sad. What happened? Oh man, this is the worst story. The oh, guy, tell he, it to yeah. me. I'm re- oh. Tell it to me. I can handle it. So you got to feel bad for the guy who did it. It was not his fault. He He's a victim just as much as a tree. Oh God! And people are going to go crazy if they hear me say that. But I'm going to stick to my I'm going to stick to my narrative here. So Casey's talking about this tree named Prometheus, and in 1964, a geography grad student by the name of Donald Rusk Curry was poking into trees to find out more info about the Little Ice Age, and he was using this thin increment borer to take what should have been just like a harmless core sample about the diameter of a pencil. So dendrochronologists use them all the time. Not a biggie. He just had some of these borers and these borers, um, the increment borers, what you're talking about, where you drill into the tree to measure the rings. Um, so he had one of those. Most of the nice ones are made over in Switzerland. And if you want to, if you break it, then it's like several thousand dollars. And you have to get a new one or have them fix yours, that sort of thing. So these trees, because they grow so slowly and have such dense rings, their wood is really, really hard to get into. So as soon as you drill in and you pull out this core, it's really difficult sometimes to get the actual increment borer back out of the tree. Without breaking the increment bore. Okay. So he drilled into the tree with one increment bore and it got stuck. So he drilled in with another one and it got stuck. So he's like, okay, well, both of my increment bores are now stuck in this tree. What am I going to do? So then the guy um, went over to the Forest Service and said, hey, can I just cut this tree down? You know, I'll count the rings and all these things. You know, I'll, it's for science. Like he had all the permits, everything was on the up and up. And there was one tree that he happened to be working on. Of all the thousands and hundreds that were around him, he just sort of walked up and was like, uh, "You, I'm going to measure you." So he did it, cut it down. Um, and the and the USDA Forest Service, whoever was up there, was just like, "Yeah, go ahead. Sounds good. There's a hundred different of them. That's fine. This tree, for all intents and purposes, is not special, other than the fact that it's innately special because it's a really cool kind of tree." Mm-hmm. Now protected, I believe, in California. So, cut it down. Started to count the rings. Oh, God. One, two, three, six thousand, four thousand. It was like 4,700 years old. The oldest recorded living thing on the planet. I know. And it was was so tragic. (gasps) Like, the collective shock in that world... Because apparently there were not environmentalists, but there were certain intrepid people who had known about this tree. But uh, people who study trees and find the superlative trees, the biggest, the fattest, the this, other than General um, uh, Sherman, the biggest giant sequoia in the world, all the other trees are very hidden. Like the tallest um, uh, redwood, I think it might be the stratosphere giant. There's a couple that are named. Oh, my God. No one knows exactly where it is. Very few people, because they don't want this thing to happen. They don't want people to go and like, oh, I'm just going to take one cone. And then all the cones are gone. Then stamp all the way around the soil and cause the tree to die. They're like protected celebrities. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. (gasps) They're so protected. And so it's like, oh, no. Are you kidding me? The one tree. So everyone got super mad at him. It was like, you cut down the oldest tree. And you have to see this guy's a researcher studying these trees, doing dendrochronology. So it's not that he was just like, we're going to log it and turn it into a table. He's just like, no, I, how, I, I wasn't, and then 
for the rest of his life, he was just absolutely vilified. Oh my god, Casey, yeah. I'm literally crying. It's this so, is so it's, sad. I know, I know. And you look back on it, and you're like, I can't believe, like, oh my, god. literally two thousand. You have to, or four thousand seven hundred years. When you conceive of that, like the pyramids were built like six thousand years ago. So when, um, let's see, two thousand years before Christ was born, these trees were already growing. When Christ was born, they were already ancient trees by our standards. They were already 2,000 years old. 2,700, maybe. So it was one of these things where you're just like, how can I just, uh, oh my God. What did like the it's guy hard to conceptualize. do? Did he go into the witness protection program? Um, I know he should have. He just kind of disappeared. I think he had changed careers, stopped doing anything, and he just sort of settled out. Um, but he ended up, um, this one person remembered his name, and he was doing something, and someone brought it up and was like, hey, aren't you the guy that killed the world's oldest tree? And he was just like, God, oh, don't open up that wound again. And yeah, so... It's, it's a really sad story. But the guy didn't do it on purpose. It's just, hey, he was in the wrong place at the wrong time in the wrong tree. I mean, it chances so are, sad. if you're up there boring trees, you love trees. Exactly. Yeah. It's I, it was it's mind-blowing. But So I got so sad for the tree. And also because this guy probably ended up living under a bridge. And his family probably never talked to him again. Probably couldn't get a job. Had to eat out of the garbage. Give up all of his science dreams for one mistake. And I looked into it and it turns out he did just fine. He had a successful career in academia. He was a geography professor, nothing to do with trees. He didn't even have to change his name or wear a wig or shave his eyebrows so no one recognized him. You guys, I once got fired from a job in college for defrosting the mini fridge wrong and breaking it. This guy just sailed through life killing the world's oldest thing. Prometheus at... 4,862 years old was considered to be the oldest living thing in the world until 2012, when a newer oldest one was discovered. It was a tree that was 5,062 years old. And you're like, well, what's that one's name if the other one was named Prometheus? Good question. The new oldest one is unnamed. No one's ever named it. Frankly, that really bothers me. It's like the oldest alive thing on Earth. Call it Jeff or Yvonne. Fucking anything. Anyway, I gotta calm, I gotta calm down. I gotta take a breather. So those are the oldest trees. What he was studying, dendrochronology, and to answer your question, yes, when you drill in, it does cause a wound in a tree, but just like that big tunnel, it's just a smaller wound. The tree will compartmentalize over it. And you just have to go halfway through. So yeah, if you can hit that pith, pull it out, then you, boom, there you go. You got all the rings of that tree, as long as the tree was living that entire section. But they're so close together, you have to actually get a microscope and a tiny little pin to like actually count them out because you can't see it with the naked eye many times. It just looks like this black sort of thing. You have three or 4,000 rings, 4,000 individual lines Yikes. in the span of maybe three feet, four feet. Oh my it's crazy. God, that's it's crazy. nuts. And so this guy, so dendrochronology, what he was studying, this is so fascinating. Basically, <laughs> what the way it works is you drill into the tree, you have a living tree. You can measure, okay, that tree is 4,000 years old. Cool. Now you look next to it and you see a dead tree. That dead tree likely was living before the tree that was alive that you just measured. Mm -hmm. So you can say, okay, I can measure and drill into that tree, pull out oh. this ring, and then match up those rings. Because remember, each one's growing in the same place, so its rings are going to have the same thickness and the same uh, um, the same ke um, chemical compounds. So for instance, carbon, which is where the story is going to go. It's going to get great. Okay. So what they do is they said, okay, 
let's match up this living tree with this dead tree. And then all of a sudden they realize, wow, this dead tree was alive, you know, a thousand years previous. So I get now an extra thousand years to add on to it once you match up those overlapping parts of their lives. Mm -hmm. Then you find another tree that is even older, that's a dead standing snag that you're just like, oh man, that tree's been gone for hundreds of years, but it's still standing there because there's no decay that's up there. This is like 11, 12,000 feet of elevation. There's nothing up there that's affecting these trees, at least not historically. Mm -hmm. So now you find an even older dead tree and you're like, okay, cool. This older dead tree, now I can match up with that other dead tree and you just keep on getting these overlapping things. And they just find all these trees, match up all of their different rings together, and then boom, you can count back as long as you are 100% sure that all those rings are from the same year. So they can match all these rings together, and by now they've amassed something like 10,500 years of records for climate and carbon in the atmosphere. Now, what's very cool is they can use that record as a reference to the amount of C4 or carbon in the trees, and they can compare it to how we carbon date like artifacts for certain civilizations. So it's like a dendrochronologist getting featured on an anthropologist mixtape. So what they did is they recalibrated all the machines, or at least some machines, retested these things and found that they were completely off. Where they're like, wow. So we actually had to redo what we thought about European history, for example, because we redid our carbon dating and realized, wow, we've been kind of off. So trees are a paper trail in every way. Yes, pun intended. (laughs) Okay, I have a question about... How do trees grow around benches and bicycles and fences? Like, you know, you see those pictures where a tree is eating a bicycle. Yeah. Like, what is life? What's (laughs) happening? How did that happen? Oh, it's great. And I've seen exactly the one you're talking about. In fact, it was taken. It's like an old, like, uh, banana seat bike, like, up in a tree. Yes. (laughs) And the caption that I read underneath it was like, oh, someone left this bike against this tree in 1930 and it grew up. Hey, that tree was, like, probably 40 years old. So it's not really 1930. Mm Mm-hmm. It's just an old bike. But trees aren't like grass, where if you cut grass, the growing part of that grass is at the base. It's at the um, the head of the, what is it, the crown of the plant right at the soil level. So it comes out and then moves up. Trees, they once they grow to a certain point, that's it. That will be there forever. If they put out a branch at one foot, that branch will always be at one foot. It'll probably die at some point or get cut off, and then the tree will grow around it, and don't have to worry about it. But basically, um, that bike was put 20 feet up in that tree. Oh, 100%. That's how it. they grow. So they can't lift anything in that regard. Oh, God. Okay. Quick aside on the backstory of this bike. Ugh. So it went viral with this caption, a boy left his bike chained to a tree, and then he went away to war in 1914, and his parents left it there as a memorial. But yeah, like Casey says, bullshit. Okay, so first off, the U.S. did not go to war in 1914. Secondly, the real owner of the bike didn't have parents. In the 1950s on Vashon Island in Washington, this kid named Don Putz lost his dad in a house fire, which is so sad. And a bunch of locals donated items to the family. It was a mom with five kids. And so he got a bike and he hated the bike. It sucked. So one day he just ditched it in a swamp and someone must have found it, hung it in a tree. The tree grew around it. So he had no idea until 40 years later, he's grown up. He's a sheriff. He visited this tree landmark on a vacation back in his hometown. And he was like, well, hot damn, that's my bike. And it sucks. And he says it just belongs to the tree now, which 
I'm guessing, from the way it was wedged into the tree's crotch and it had to grow into its flesh that the tree hates the bike too. But what they can do um, is grow around things. So trees grow and they react to different forces around them. So if there is a, oh, there's actually a great picture I have. Oh my gosh. It's a tree in the Sierra Nevada. It's a um, common juniper. And there is this big like horizontal um, stack of, um, of granite just growing out. The tree was growing right just right next to it. So as the tree got bigger and bigger, all of a sudden it kept starting to push on that rock. The rock wasn't budging. So then it can't push out anymore, but it's still going to put on these rings. So the tree ends up growing out above and below it. So the rock just stays right (laughs) where it is. And the tree just keeps pushing out over the top, pushing out over the bottom and literally starts to encompass that, that physical rock. So it got to the point where it looked almost like the tree had been pouring over the rock. And so it like came down and then just like poured off the side of it. But it was it was just the wackiest Ooh, picture. And I, I wish I could find it. I have more questions. But I hope you're not. Are you late for anything? No, I literally have nothing. I told okay, a friend good. I would grab a beer and that's it. OK, good, because people have questions. Um, hold on. Do people have questions. I, I, I guess this is so exciting. I know. OK, oh, wait. I, um, I could do this all night. Warning. Weird question. Bear with me. Okay, do you think that certain trees have certain personalities? Like, I know that Mm. that sounds like a very weird magical question, but do you see a tree? Maybe this is just because I have a little bit of synesthesia where like numbers and letters have different personalities. But do you you ever feel like different vibes from different trees? I would say so. Yeah? Yeah. But I don't know. It's not, um, it's definitely not in a specific sense where I'd be like, what's up? That's my bro. That's my tree. (laughs) And we've been hanging out for years. And then I look over another tree. I'm like, oh, birches. I can't. Uh, they just look at me wrong all the time. It's not quite that explicit, but is it, uh, my view is colored by um, what the tree's doing, like the characteristics of it. So like um, if I see one tree, I'm like, ah, oh, you are overplanted. You fall apart all the time. You put out flowers and they stink and you pull up the sidewalk. You are just not a good tree. I don't, I don't want anything to do with you. It's not how I feel. It's not, it's, you know, it's like, oh, I hate you. But then you're like, well, but, you, know, you want to hang out later. That's cool. <laughs> it's kind of like what it is. Like when I was a kid, we had this tree growing up that had a bend in it. You could sit in it like a chair and we nailed a table up there so you could perch up there, sip a soda in the woods. This tree always seemed just so benign, kind of like a cool grandpa that's just like, sure, you can nail a table into my flesh and put a Diet Pepsi on it, you little brat. I love you. What do you think about the Giving Tree book? Does it make you cry a lot? Oh, it does. I have it. It's on the. I built these shelves, and it's on the shelf up above my bed. I love that tree or that book. Wait, did you build the shelves out of wood? I did. Oh, I did, but I reused it. It was a pallet, and I turned it into these cool shelves, and I filled it up with cones and tree books and like certifications. I think one of my degrees is up there, something like that. So, are you ready for some questions from uh, patrons? Ah, yeah, this is so exciting. I had no idea. There's so many questions. I had to cut them off. Oh, I don't think I've ever gotten this many questions. So. Holy heck. Um, On my Patreon. Pressure is on. Patrons get to ask questions to theologists. So, oh my gosh. Okay. (laughs) I'm going to just run through. It's a rapid fire round. Answer as quickly as you can. We'll get through as many as we can. Sounds good. Sounds good. You got it? I think I can do it. Okay. Chime at the end when I run out of time. No, I should have a whistle. Yeah. yeah, I should. 
But before we take questions from you, our beloved listeners, we're going to take a quick break for sponsors of the show. Sponsors? Why sponsors? You know what they do? They help us give money to different charities every week. So if you want to know where Ologies gives our money, you can go to AliWord.com and look for the tab Ologies Gives Back. There's like 150 different charities that we've given to already with more every single week. So if you need a place to go donate a little bit of money, but you're not sure where to go, those are all picked by Ologists who work work in those fields. And this ad break allows us to give a ton of money to them. So thanks for listening and thanks sponsors. Okay, your questions. Okay, here we go. Um, Beth Frausto wants to know, do trees feel pain when we trim them? Oh, they do, but not in a strict sense. So this also goes back to the um, hidden life of trees, where whenever we personify a tree and we give it sort of a humanistic thing, Mm -hmm. we're always sort of selling it short a little bit because it's like, oh, well, you really... Don't want to say that the tree feels because then everyone's going to be really sad when they're cutting down trees. Actually, maybe that might be a good thing. Yeah, yeah I might take this back. <laughs> Regardless, usually scientists try not to to do it, um, except for this one instance with the tr- friend or the um, hidden life of trees. That was probably the single greatest thing to happen to science about trees because some guy brought it down to a um, relatable level for the rest of humanity, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden people are like, "Wow." Trees, they do feel, they do think, they do this. And then scientists are like, I'm just going to say yes, just because that means that we're on the same page now. It's good for branding. Exactly, it's great. <laughs> so they um, they do feel pain, but the pain isn't so much that they are like, ow. They're more because they're compartmentalizers. So all that does is create a reaction that says, ooh, I need to protect myself. Something may get in. Y'all do this with dating? Hey. Oh. Either it's going to get an insect that is going to come in or it's going to be a fungus or both or a multitude of other things. So as soon as you prune a tree, it will get a wound. It's not that the tree is feeling hurt, but the tree will then respond to that. So they'll respond immediately, especially by the next year, and they will just put on new new wood to cover over it. So it just puts in these three walls of chemical protection, then grows a fourth wall of wood over the top to seal over that wound. Mm-hmm. And they're like, so, it never happened. Exactly. It's like, it never happened. So it's not that they feel pain, but they react to the wound in a way that is best protecting them from any other pathogen or insect or something that's going to come in and get them. So anytime you cut a tree and then it just starts pushing out sap, A, it's kind of like bleeding, especially if you cut it during the growing season, where it's just pushing out as much energy and sugars as it can to its leaves to grow big and strong. You cut that off, all of a sudden, there's a bunch of pressure inside the tree, literally pushing all this sap out. But that sap is also covering over that wound and making it an impenetrable place for all these other insects and things to get in. So it's actually literally sealing itself. Right. It's like a varnish, kind of. Yeah, exactly. Delicious varnish. That actually leads me to my next question. Dustin Mills wants to know, how many different kind of trees can you get syrup from? And does that hurt the tree? Oh, so it does. It hurts it just like anything else, but it kind of hurts it in the same way that if you give blood, you're hurting yourself. Okay. So they have plenty of um, stored nutrients and stored sugars and all these things. So you can get syrup from almost any kind of tree. It just depends on if it's delicious or if it's so, so diluted to where it just takes way too much effort to actually get it. So there's a tree called a sweet gum for all you nerds that is liquid amber cyrasiflua. <laughs> wonderful, wonderful tree. Also, one of those trees that's like, oh, I wish you weren't planted so much in the urban area because they just tear up sidewalks. Oh. But some of the best fall color you're ever going to get in a tree 
They're beautiful from orange to yellow to purple to red. It's just, it's wonderful. Um, but what they do is um, you used to tap them. That's why they call it sweet gum because they would tap them in the South and then they would grow or collect all of the tree sap. You boil it down to get all the water out and you get this sugar. Some taste really good. Some have other chemicals in it that make them less tasty. Um, people have used them on birch trees and on other different maples, all a bunch of different species of maple. But the reason we use sugar maple right now is just because it has the highest concentration of sugar per amount of sap. This still takes hours and hours to boil it off to create the actual thing, of which there's no recipe. Every bit you get, they're just looking at it, they're like, eh, looks done. Really? Yeah, there's no actual, like, boil it for 10 minutes. It's boil it until it looks right. That's, and that's, that's it. so analog. So side note, confession, little FYI. I always thought that maple syrup just kind of dripped out of trees as is. Like you could just wander in the forest with a pocket full of waffles and just get a little smear here or there. But the sap actually comes out clear, kind of like water. And it takes 40 gallons of it to boil down and make one gallon of maple syrup which seems like a lot of tree tears. But they tap a bunch of them. They get just a little bit from everyone. So don't don't be too sad. You can continue to brunch unencumbered by guilt. Zach Charbel wants to know, what's the science behind tree grafting and budding? Because mm, a lot of fruit mm -hmm. trees are just grafted. Yeah, almost. What the oh, hell, This is dude? so great. Every banana you've had has been a literal clone of every other banana you've ever had. What the hell's up I with know. that? So this is true. I just looked it up. This, this is crazy. So wild bananas are kind of short and squat. They're full of a bunch of pebbly seeds. Nobody loves them. And so we have cultivated this seedless, sterile one from a single specimen way back. So all the bananas that we eat now, all of them of the Cavendish variety come from one single banana plant way back. We just keep splicing. So just think of this. If you're in love with Michael B. Jordan, say, or Francis McDormand, and you have both eaten a banana, you have the same bananas genes in your colon as them at one point. Isn't that exciting? So Cavendish got popular in the 1950s because all the bananas we used to eat, also clones, they were called Fat Mitchells or Gros Michels, they were wiped out by a fungus. So apparently, you know the banana flavor we taste that tastes like fake banana? And we're like, is this what a banana tastes like? Those taste like the old-timey, phased-out Gros Michel bananas which all died. Is this weird to you? It's so weird to me. Yes, of course, we have no bananas. We have no bananas today. Same thing with apples. All the apples that are sweet delicious or golden delicious or whatever it is, they all came from one single tree. That's weird. It's great. So what they do is, it is it's really weird and it's really, it's, oh man, it's, it kind of makes you feel like now when you look at those trees, maybe this is a personality where it's like this weird Igor tree. It's like, oh my gosh, you're Frankenstein. Like you just have all these different <laughs> parts growing onto you and it's just like, oh, you look so grizzled and worn and it's like you're just mishmash of parts from other trees anyway i didn't even know that was a thing until very recently oh my gosh oh yeah it's it's a it's hidden knowledge i guess what they do is they find the ones that have the best root stock and they said okay this one's really good but it just gets these tiny little crab apples that are not very delicious they're just like oh these are sour so you cut that and if you can find another tree that happened to have this one crazy apple that's huge and delicious and sweet and whatever you cut that apple or that bit off one of those um those limbs and then as long as it's the same size, you just literally put it together with a little bit of uh, tape around it and some, I, I forgot the compound, but there's like a sort of compound that they put on there that encourages all you have to, or that encourages the cambium layer 
to come back together. So literally all you're doing is matching up those cambium layers. So as long as the stem is the same size, you can match up both cambium layers around, cover that with tape, and then it literally just grafts itself into it and it's as if the tree has a now whole functioning system again. That's nuts. It's crazy. It's just like yeah. organ transplants. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But more successful. Uh-huh. But having said that, apples are just completely pointless. And I'm just going to say this right now. So side note, how does Casey like them apples? Well, he does not. He launched into an impassioned four-minute anti-apple rant, which I'm just going to recap. They were sold as health food via propaganda after the prohibition, because all these cider apples could no longer be sold to make hooch, you see? So I looked into this, checks out. So now apples are, in Casey's eyes, forced on us as snacks. He does not like them. I love him for this. But it's just like, uh, like everyone who buys apples and like, I'm going to eat it as a snack. I'm like, you're just going to get hungry. You should bring cheese. You should at least get cheese and some peanut butter. I'm not going to eat it, but I've never ahead. heard someone who was such uh, an apple phobe. And the reason that I know that that's not good for the apple trees, that it's like not happening is because these apples get so laden with these, or these trees get so laden with apples to where they're literally breaking their own branches because of the weight. And it's just like, you guys are turning these into like monsters. Like this tree can't even support itself and it's ripping it apart. I'm telling you, dude hates apples. Also, Casey, I'm so sorry. I was literally eating an apple as I was writing these asides. Life is just complicated. Radka Vicaria has a question. Why do some trees lose their leaves in the winter and others don't? Aha. Oh, I love this question. So this comes down to a, um, a specific, um, basically strategy. So if you think of trees as um, having a budget, one part of their budget goes towards making uh, or growing tall in competition, you know, physically getting to be a big size growth. Then another part of that budget would be towards reproduction because there's no point in growing unless you can reproduce. The third part, third big part, would go towards um, protection. So you can do any amount of energy put into any three or any one of those three categories. Obviously, there's a couple more categories. It's very simplified in this instance. Mm-hmm. You have a tree, it's growing, and it gets too cold. And so it's not that it actually gets too cold for the leaf itself. It's that wind continually rips through and damages that leaf. So what some trees have opted to do or what has um, worked for them is instead of having just these um, dinky little leaves that just get completely destroyed during the wintertime or the water gets too, um, uh, the water freezes in the ground so the trees can't pull it up or it gets too cold up in the air and ice crystals actually form in the leaf itself and rip it apart. Yeah, it's really bad when um, leaves and tissues like that freeze. Just the same as if we, our fingers froze, the reason that we get frostbite is because it actually the ice crystals in our fingers expand out just because we know ice expands Ooh. and it rips apart the cells. It's just terrible. P.S. That's the noise I make when my butthole clenches in sympathy pain. So you're welcome. Okay. And is that how frostbite really works? It is. I never knew. Casey is just a font of knowledge. He's more like a tap of sweet fact sap for our brains to boil down. So for some trees, what they decide to do or what, you know, worked for them is they made their leaves just a little bit tougher. So they put more of their energy into making that leaf really strong, making it waterproof, making it um, less edible, making it so adding more lignin and more things that make it less, uh, more distasteful to different animals. Some trees put a lot of energy into their leaves because they put a lot of energy into their leaves. They now can hold them, but they don't want to just let them drop because that was so much energy. You can't just drop that onto the ground and then regrow it again the 
next year. Mm -hmm. So really tough leaves, they can withstand the conditions. So as soon as spring comes, if you get an early spring, the trees that are evergreen are already ready to go. They are photosynthesizing. Spring comes, boom, they are, there's, they're right off the bat. They would be um, able to compete better in that instance, whereas the deciduous trees are still dormant. They have not been growing over this entire season. They've dropped their leaves. But because they haven't put so much effort and energy into those leaves, they can put it into something else, i.e. into growing really fast or putting out a lot of fruit. You get a tree that is deciduous, drops its leaves, goes dormant, and then as soon as spring hits and conditions get really good, they shoot up by like two or three feet sometimes. Oh. And so while you have these other trees that have put a lot of energy into their leaves, they have less energy to put into growing tall, less energy into defense. So it's just more of a balance of which is more functional for this tree at the right time. Sometimes deciduous doesn't make any sense because the conditions are so good where you're like, oh, well, why get rid of my leaves? Mm -hmm. There's no good reason. So up here, it's usually water is the limiting factor. So their leaves start to desiccate, lose all their water, then they drop them, then they just wait. So it's it's more just about favorable conditions than it is about climate. Yeah. It really depends on what's best for the tree. Yeah, most of the time. And obviously climate has something to do with it. You yeah. know, we have evergreen trees here because why lose your leaves if you can just photosynthesize for 80% of the year? Just go for it. And then in the meantime, they're living off of stored sugars. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. So they're always respiring 100% of the year. You know, trees are the only things or rather certain plants are the only things that can produce produce their own food and then respire to use it. So we're respiring every physical or every living thing uses respiration to breathe. And that's why we breathe out carbon dioxide and water. Trees do the exact opposite. They say take carbon dioxide and water, turn it into oxygen and a simple sugar or a long chain of sugars. So all they do is just store it, store it, store it, and then just sort of sit there and then just eat sugar all year round until they can start growing again. Just snacking. Yeah, it's really just nice. Snacking. It's delicious. I wish I could do it. Do you so. think that planting more trees will save the environment? Um, yes. Okay. I'm just going to say blatant. Yes. We'll just leave it a yes and move yes. on. Yeah. Always plant more trees. <laughs> There's so many good reasons I, that we could do a thousand more hours of talking about. Do you think there are certain trees that Josh... Bruce wants to know, are there certain trees that are better for the environment than others? Mm, yeah, I would say so. Um, but really, it's not necessarily better for the environment. It's better for maybe the micro environment. So small trees that don't cast a lot of shade over a bunch of cement not really doing a lot. Okay. A big, huge, large tree that shades over a bunch of cement and lowers the heat island effect in a city, which is just the fact that in cities, it's warmer temperatures than in the associated um, cropland or forest land. It's just cooler out there and warmer in here. And that's because we have so many impervious services that are taking in heat and then bouncing it back out. Mm -hmm. So if we have a big tree that's growing over the top of that, then we're shading out that area. If we do that over the scale of the entire United States, then all of a sudden we're like losing millions of tons of carbon just by having one tree shading our house during the hottest time of the day. Uh -huh. So in that instance, yes, some are better at uh, accomplishing our objectives in terms of helping out the environment. But for the most part, yeah, plant a tree. It's it's always going to be great. Um, okay. A couple more questions from... I, we got, I got so many questions. There's no way I could possibly answer all of these. Oh, this would be like a seven hour episode. Um, <laughs> yeah, has one, who listens to hardcore history here? Know, okay, right? yeah, I'm ready. Seriously? Let's do it. <laughs> Mark James has a great question. Are bonsai trees actually trees or are they shrubs with pretension? Oh, man. Can I say both? <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> I'm going to say both then. They do have a certain amount of pretension, but it was given and forced upon them. 
So Casey compares bonsai cultivation with traditions like, oh, you know, corsets and foot binding. And if I may add my two cents, I'd say let's lump in modern day high heels, which we're going to look back with just horror. Please mark my words. Your grandkids are going to look back at probably like a holographic photo album of present day women in evening gowns just grimacing and carrying strappy stilettos at the end of a party and ask grandma, what in turd's name were you thinking? This is a nightmare. How did you live? Why did you not stab people with your shoes? And we will say it was just, it was just what you did. Now lather up my stumps, will you child? Same exact thing, where they're completely torturing these trees in every way. So they are beautiful. They're pretentious. And so bonsai tree is technically a tree, Mm -hmm. but literally bonsai means a tree in a pot. So that's all it is. They just really take it seriously sometimes. And I wish I could do it. It's actually so hard to do. People will be like, ah, I could do that. You'll kill your tree. I guarantee. Those trees are so well taken care of. It's obscene. (laughs) They're like show dogs. They are. Oh my gosh. That's the best way to look at it. Yeah. You you can almost see them prancing around and all these things. (laughs) In looking this up, I learned that it's actually pronounced bonsai, which you can say if you're feeling pretentious. So that being said, recently a centuries old pine bonsai sold for $1.3 million for a single bonsai. That's a lot of money for a bonsai. I got this information on a bonsai website called bonsaiempire.com, which has has a lot of information about bonsais. And so what they do is you have this small tree. It's a regular tree. If you take a bonsai redwood tree, you pull it out of the ground, or pull it out of its pot, and you put it in the ground, you give it a thousand years, it will be... 300 feet tall. No. Swear to God. They are exactly the same trees as every other species that exists. Every bonsai is the same tree as the regular species that grows out and gets huge. So black pines, Japanese black pines are a great example. They get huge. They're really nice, beautiful trees. They will use those as bonsai trees more often than not. No way. Yeah. All they do is you pull them out during the dormant season, you clip the roots a little bit, and you put them back in, you add a little bit of uh, fertilizer or something, just to sort of keep them going sometimes. And then you prune the top and you sort of shape the tree exactly. But every time you do that, when you cut off any amount of roots, A, you're taking away a food source for the tree or a nutrient and water source. So it's like, okay, well, now I have to regrow that root. So they're putting a lot more effort into constantly regrowing. And you're also cutting off that stored starch in that area. You're cutting off a root, you're taking away a certain amount of stored energy, and lessening the ability for that tree to get nutrients and energy later. So, all you're doing is torturing that tree. Literally, if you could hear screams during the wintertime, you would just hear these little tiny like, ah, as then they, you know, cut off all the roots, and then they put them back down and they shape them. So, that's why the trees, they stay small, is because they're literally bound in this pot the same way that feet would stay small if you bound them in shoes, which you shouldn't do. It's an atrocious thing. So, I just went down a real rabbit hole about foot binding, which is now illegal, but for centuries, it involved breaking young girls' toes and then soaking them in animal blood and then wrapping them into deformity. And about how that was just like accepted, kind of like our modern stilettos, because it just, it made the legs look muscular and it was an erotic treasure for men. The girls' hobbled gait was supposed to tighten their vaginas. Let's just say I'm making that noise again. 
At least for the feet. The bonsai trees, eh, like I said, they don't feel pain, but they certainly will respond to it. So you're basically keeping that tree in a very stressed state its entire life. Oh, it's but, like Munchausen's by proxy, where it's like you'd see your kid and you're like, I'm going to stunt your growth so you never leave. Oh, me. God, that's exactly what it is. It's terrifying. Oh, okay, oh. one last question. Okay. Jillian Page Jefferson wants to know Hi, Hi. just curious. Are there any certain types of trees that produce more oxygen than other trees? Ooh, I don't know. I don't know either. I do know that, um, you know, it's a chemical equation. So it's literally. For X amount of carbon and sugar used, you get an X amount of oxygen. So it wouldn't be necessarily that one tree just produces more oxygen. It's that one would um, respire or uh, would make more photosynthesis. So some trees just pump it out and then store the store the energy so you can like cut them down and they'll just keep growing back. So those might be ones that probably produce more, but it's just because they're working overtime. It's not that they're actually producing more with less they're same amount, same equation. It's just one plus two equals three every single time. Okay. So, yeah. So, yeah, probably. So, if you want to plant trees, you should probably consult like a local arborist and say, hey, yeah. what's the best kind of plant? <sighs> yes, I completely concur. We touched on this a little bit, but the last two questions I always ask are, mm-hmm. what is your least favorite thing about what you do? Mm-hmm. What is the hardest part? What is the most annoying part? What's mm-hmm. your least favorite? Yeah. I would say the hardest part is convincing people... Um, And this is more hard, like a challenge, is convincing people to understand trees. I don't want to say the way I understand trees, but to at least give them a better appreciation of how the trees affect them. So a lot of people are like, oh, I got to cut down this tree or all this tree's dangerous. And I'm like, well, no, it's not. And here's why. And I explain it through. And most of the time I get people who are just like, oh, okay, cool. I, I never knew that or I never thought about it that way. But then I try to explain the benefits of trees. And I'm like, hey, when you go to work and you look out your window and you see this, you know, landscape with trees, maybe a pond, grass, that sort of thing. And then you compare it. They've done studies on this. This is I can confirm. So I went and fact checked this later. And it's true. There are a bunch of studies done in different situations, all pretty much same outcome. On the other side of the building where it's just a brick wall that they're looking at. If you guys are doing the same job, you're getting paid the same, the person with the view of the uh, landscape of the trees will have more production. They will or be more productive, less stress, and they'll be more satisfied with their job. Really? person on the other side will have less of those things oh. all across the board. And they've done all these studies and they say, well, you know, if you are sitting in a hospital bed and you're recovering and you look out the window, you see trees, those people use less pain medication and recover faster than the same exact person, same exact situation without that view. Oh my God. There's this well-known short story about two men in a hospital. One is blind. The other describes the scenes out the window to him. Turns out the window was just overlooking a brick wall, but is roommate made up these beautiful scenes to help the other guy. I tried to look up the original author for this, and I, it can only be traced to a guy named Harry Bushman. Harry Bushman. Bushman, super appropriate for a nature episode. Or perhaps Harry Bushman was a name adopted in the wild and crazy Harry 1960s Harry Bushman. So I'm trying to convince people, I'm like, hey, listen, you're like, you don't understand. You cut down this tree, 
I can tell you there's going to be physical effects. It's going to cost money, first off. Second off, if you don't hire someone who knows what they're doing, they could drop some part on your house or your car. So pay for pay for good work. Number three, you're going to have maybe uh, more sun's going to hit it. You're going to have more rain. You're going to have now drainage problems because you don't have this huge thing pulling up water from the ground all the time. But then on top of that, you're going to have maybe less privacy. You're going to have less or more stress because things are going to be a little bit hotter. You can see more pavement. There's going to be more direct lines that are harsh. So there's all these like small micro things that really add up. So the hardest part, I think for me is to try and convince. It's not necessarily hard for me. It depends on the audience is Mm -hmm. to convince someone, no, you don't want to cut down the tree. And here's why, here's why it's doing a lot more good that you may not even know about. But when you do the, when you do the before and after, you're going to be like, man, man, I'm really stressed right now. It's like, have you been staring at pavement or you've been looking at a tree? Oh, I forgot to ask one question. Well, how do you feel about Christmas trees? Christmas trees are fun. They're great. Okay. I always have a real Christmas tree. You don't mind that they're getting cut? No, not really. No, not in that regard. Okay. Because they're they're small. And, you know, if you're really comparing them, uh, you can just regrow another one in like five or eight years. Like, okay. It doesn't take that long. I was going to go 50-50. I was like, yeah. Casey's either going to hate Christmas trees <laughs> or he's going to love them. I did not know which side oh, of the yeah. line you were nice. going to end up on. That yeah, was totally. a surprise to me. I was yes. like, I was like, easily... You could have been like Christmas trees are an abomination. Mm-hmm. Everyone should have like a tumbleweed with some lights yeah. on it. I don't know. Okay, that seems reasonable. Yeah, but yeah, I I like it. And also, if you think about all the other things, you know, it's a rural er side of the world that grows Christmas trees. So you're mm-hmm. supporting that economy buying a you know twenty five dollar noble fir or something like that. Okay, they try to make them perfect. I hate that. Just let a tree grow. Cut it down. Put it in your house. You got a tree. You don't need to worry about it making a perfect, like, you know, pyramidal shaped thing. And, you know, shear right. it to within an inch of its life. Ugly trees, yeah. fine trees. Yeah, ugly trees are fine trees. I just love, in fact, some of the coolest trees. If any, if you ever look up the bristlecone pines, those old, old trees, mm-hmm. they are so gnarly. Like, you're like, how are you even a thing? I'm going to go deep into some tree porn later. And oh, my God. start yeah. looking up. I'm just going to start Pinterest boarding a yeah. whole tree thing. I actually have a book I call tree porn because um, it has a, a like long picture. It's called Tree, I think, is all it is. This is very fancy. And it has this, um, like, literally, like, centerfolds of, like, tall redwoods. And so I'm, like, leaning back. I'm like, oh, yeah, that is that is a huge tree. It was like, oh, my gosh, Casey, get a room. And I'm like, no, 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 I'm doing this right here on the couch. I'm looking at this tree. But, Casey, it's, it's printed on a dead tree. I know. The irony is so thick. I know. But I have to say, it's a renewable resource. I it's so renewable like, uh, resource. Yeah. If it's done correctly, logging is absolutely going to save the world. We're doing things right now with um, trees. It's called um, cross-laminated timber, CLT. It is going to be the future, and I'm absolutely sure of this. They're doing it in Germany. We're just now in Oregon getting a couple mills on board to start doing it. But basically think really thick plywood where you have boards going left and right. Then you have them turn 90 degrees, and they're going that direction. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're just doing this over and over and over until you get this big like six-inch thick piece of uh, panel, and then you can cut that into whatever shape you want and put it together like Legos. Like oh. Literally, they said, if you hear like hammers and nails on one of these sites where they're building this you know structure then something went wrong wow because they just sort of fit in together and then they're less fire resistance this is the funniest thing it's wood wait more fire resistance yes sorry more fire resistance (laughs) sorry so this new type of lumber is too dense to burn which is also a really good self-deprecating way of deflecting an insult too dense to burn Now, it's also what's called a carbon sink because it traps carbon dioxide and keeps it there, which helps counter climate change and global warming. 
which is necessary if we don't want to be swallowed by boiling oceans. So it should be the future. I'm really looking forward to it. That's ideally. That's really optimistic because yeah. I wasn't sure what the future was going to be. And this is good yeah. to know. Oh, I hope it is. I hope it is because if we can get it to the extent where almost all of our buildings are now timber framed again, we can make sure that all of our trees are um, grown properly and under certain conditions. Wood is naturally good at moving. So you don't have to worry about the tensile strength. Everything's already built into the fiber itself. And on top of that, it's nicer to look at wood than it is cement. So it's kind of like, oh, this is so much more pleasant than I know. You know, anything else. Oh, I would so much rather have a wooden table than a glass one. Yeah, absolutely. I just, it's so comfortable. It's, they're just so much nicer. It's just something warm. Yes. It's sort of homey about it. Yeah, it's like going into an old wood paneled cabin or something. Mm-hmm. You're just like, oh, this is home. So cozy. Yeah, I can do this. Where's my pipe? It's like a big wooden womb. Yeah. Oh, it's just I love it. Exactly. <laughs> oh, it's so, delightful. Now, to end on happy note, oh, what yeah, okay. is your very, very favorite thing about what you do? Mm. Uh, I know that's going to be hard for you. This is, oh man. But really, it's looking at trees almost every single day. And most of them are all different trees or different situations of trees. So I go out and I see a dogwood one day and I get to protect it from a development. I'm like, nope, you have to retain this tree. It's an awesome tree. You did it. That makes me go home so happy. But then... um, because of what I do and because of sort of who I am, it's not necessarily part of my job, just part of my being, I guess, where I can go out and find these trees. It's like, you know what? Today, I'm going to go out to this part of the world or this part of Oregon and I'm going to find these trees and drive out in this, this huge, long adventure. And then you plop out in this little grove and there's just these stunningly massive trees around you that have been completely untouched and protected from logging. So you're just like, oh, and like you're incredulous in how incredible these trees are. So that, not quite a part of my day-to-day job but that's my favorite thing where i get to go out and like find these cones and find these trees and be like yes i've been there i've seen it they're incredible i know how they grow i've seen them like fall and die and grow up again so that is probably the really nicest part the other nice part that i really like is actually just telling people about trees like if i can just sit down like and do something like this and someone's like tell me about trees i'm just like "Uh, (laughs) where to begin and then i can just do it for hours so i think my favorite part is when someone's actively in interestingly is listening to me mm-hmm. that's what i'm just like they're they're taking this in they like it okay they're still here all right I, one more hour one more slide let's, <laughs> let's just keep going when you found an ear to tree tails yeah it's a happy day this is such a happy day yeah and if i can convince someone that they don't want to cut down their tree if i can change that mind trees are incredible things and humans are way too hubristic in the idea i'm not even sure if that's a word but i use sure it often is. yes they think we think that we know better than the trees or better than the ecosystem system that's been developed over millions of years when someone's like oh what should i do to make this tree healthy like my answer is like let it grow the only reason that we prune trees is because of us trees don't need help yeah it's like trees know what's up oh, trees exactly. are like excuse me yeah and uh, if i've I, been evolving for millions of years yes it's like listen, how dare how long, you how long have you been here kiddo <laughs> so then this is one of my old bosses said it all the time he's like there's no reason to prune a tree other than human reasons to prune a tree. They will do it themselves if they have to, or they will fall apart and die, and then another tree is going to take its place. That's called the circle of life. That's how it goes. Mm -hmm. Speaking of circle of life, one more morbid question. (sighs) Let's go for it. When you die, do you want to be planted in one of those tree pods? Oh, yeah, totally. I don't know anything about it, but the answer is yes. I would love that. I would love a natural burial where they don't embalm me or don't put me in like a box or anything like that. If they do make it like... A uh, alder box so it decays in like 30 seconds. Okay. Put me in the ground and then plant a tree right on top so that I can, at some point, everyone else in the world will be like, Casey became that tree. <laughs> oh, 
you're going to become a tree one day. I would love that. I, I mean, would... hopefully not anytime soon, like in another yeah. like long yeah. time. Fingers crossed. Long I time, please. I outlive all the trees I planted <laughs> yes, in my life. please, please. But yeah, <laughs> that would be that would be so nice to, uh, you know, obviously I wouldn't be thinking about it then, but to know that my, you know, individual cells, my molecules have literally been transformed into something else. Yep. I don't think that... I've ever met anyone as enthusiastic about trees. <laughs> yes. That's perfect. So far, I haven't met anyone either. Maybe a couple people, but yeah, at least I can give them a good run for their money. So thank you. I'm happy to hear that. Thank you so much. Yeah, for of course. That. Yeah. Thanks for having me. This is wonderful. This world. <laughs> to continue to bask in Casey's infectious tree enthusiasm, you can see his brand new seedling of an Instagram account, which I half encouraged and half just straight up pressured him to start. He said he was going to start it anyway, and I just said, listen, dude, do it before Tuesday. You can follow him on Instagram at clap4trees, C-L-A-P-P, four, the number four, trees. It's a brand new account. It's so exciting. So you can find him there. I'll also put a link in the show notes. So Ologies is on Instagram and Twitter at Ologies, and I'm on both at Allie Ward with one L, and there's a group full of very warm, Curious folks at Ologies Podcast on Facebook. Thank you, Hannah Lippo and Aaron Talbert for adminning. Um, you can also obtain Ologies objects at ologiesmerch.com. There are pins, there are dad hats, shirts, totes, we've got phone cases. We got it. Sales support the making of the podcast. Thanks, Shannon Feltis and Bonnie Dutch for helping run that. You guys rule. Um, and thank you always to Stephen Ray Morris for editing. This was a beast of an episode. I usually have between 14 to 25 asides, and this one had 40, and he charges me by the hour. So thank you to all the patrons at patreon.com for essentially paying him and for submitting such great questions. Asking smart people dumb questions is literally the only way anyone learns anything in life. And if you think your question is dumb, I guarantee like 12 other people want to ask it and they're going to be thankful that you did. Um, you can become a patron for as little as a dollar a month and that supports the show. So if it's worth the price of a sandwich per year or whatever, consider it. You get to ask your questions and see behind the scenes pictures and videos and such. Now, the music was written by Nick Thorburn of the band Islands, which is a very nice band. And now if you stick it out to the very end, you know, I tell you a secret. And this week, it's that I never learned how to type. Even though I have been a professional writer for like the decade, I skipped that elective in high school. So my hands, when I write, just hover in weird places on the keyboard, sometimes just a pointer finger. And I'm pretty fast, but I make a ton of of typos. I make so many mistakes and I get so embarrassed when Stephen Ray Morris is working in the same Google transcript document and there's just so many red underlines. It's just like red lasagna noodles all over it. It wasn't until a year ago that I learned why keyboards have those weird knobs on the F and the J keys. I just thought they were like weird mistakes on all keyboards. So I downloaded a learn to type program. I only got a few lessons in and I need to dedicate some time to it because I type like a T-Rex trying to operate a spaceship. Okay, bye-bye. Pachydermatology, homeology, cryptozoology, lithology, and technology, meteorology, 